Matthew chapter 26. I want to talk to you for a little bit about, about disappointment. And I mean great disappointment. I remember a few years ago, we can all join in on hating Florida together, can't we? The Gators. I remember a few years ago uh, when Alabama beats Florida in the, uh, the, the, the SEC championship game. I guess it was 2009. I remember the picture of him sitting on the sidelines crying. Now, I don't get any joy out of that, really, because I've lost some sporting events and been in that situation, and I know how you can emotionally get involved in it and how that, that you know, that's a very, that's a huge disappointment. That's really, that's not the disappointment that I'm talking about today. I've been disappointed because I thought I had a job coming that didn't work out or a promotion that I didn't get. And I've been disappointed over those kind of things. But those are things you can get past. Those are not crippling. What I'm talking about today is the disappointment that you're not sure you can get past. You're not sure you can get over. It's life-changing. It's crippling. And that's kind of what Peter dealt with here in chapter 26. It says, now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also was with Jesus of Galilee. And he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. But when he denied before them all, or, uh, and when he had gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, This fellow also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him, they stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou art, thou also art one of them, for thy speech bereath thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man, and immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus and said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today, for your blessing, for the opportunity to be here. Lord, I pray that this story, this message, if there's just one person, it'll reach, it'll help, it'll encourage. I pray that that would happen this morning, Lord. And I pray that, it would, that all that we do will bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, we look at Peter's life. We go back to the beginning. And I understand that if you're saved this morning, if, 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 you've, if you're born again, there was a point in your life where Jesus did come and invite you. The Holy Spirit came and drew you and showed you your need for salvation. I get all of the doctrine of that. But keep in mind, Jesus personally walked up and called Peter to follow him and told him, I'll make you fishers of men. Peter's seen the very first miracle that Jesus ever performed when he, when he turned the water into wine. Jesus was there, or, uh, Peter was there when Jesus was, was revealed in all of his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter had seen everything from the very beginning. He's seen Jesus calm the storm, walk on water. As a matter of fact, Peter got out of the boat and walked on water himself as a result of the encouragement of Jesus. So there's nothing that Peter had not seen. He was plugged in from the very beginning. So you think about when those soldiers came and they took Jesus. And Peter's so excited and fired up and committed to the cause. He pulls a sword out and takes a swing at that soldier. And he ducks and Peter catches his ear. And Jesus puts it back on and tells Peter, calm down. I got this. And then when he sees Jesus go and he's standing before the Sanhedrin being judged, and 
I just got to feel like there was uh, people surmise about why Peter wept bitterly. And I think there could be a lot of different reasons. But I got to tell you this morning, I think a lot of it was because those things just didn't work out like Peter thought they were going to work out. I think a lot of it was just some great disappointment in his life on a lot of different levels. In 1978, my family, uh, it's a funny story. I, I wish I had time to go into detail about all of the stories in my life and the funny things, but there's no way it would take us days. But this is, uh, my, my family had gone and visited from the invitation. Now listen to this. I do think this is important. The invitation of a church member, just a lay person in the church, who coached Little League football with my dad. He coached another team opposite of my dad, but they knew each other. And he began to invite my dad to church and just stayed on him. Hey, won't you come to church with me? Won't you come to church? So finally my dad goes, and the day that my dad goes to church, the preacher gets on to some teenagers that are acting up, and he preaches against horse racing. My dad used to like to go to horse races in Hot Springs. We live in Little Rock, Arkansas. And so he left mad because he didn't like it because he called down all those teenagers and embarrassed them. And he sure didn't like it because he preached against uh, horse racing because my dad liked the horse races. He's been in church for a long time. I think he still likes him. But uh, he, uh, so we, we, we were going to churches that my dad felt comfortable in. You know, they really didn't preach against anything. There was no conviction there. There was nothing in those churches that made you uncomfortable. And sometimes, you know, part of coming to church and part of being involved and listening to the preacher of the Word of God is just going to make you uncomfortable at times. But my dad pulls into the parking lot to the church that we've been going to. We literally pull into the parking lot of this church. And my dad looks at my mom and he says, you know what? Let's go back over and try that church one more time. So we pull out of that parking lot and drive to Fairview Baptist Church, the church that we ended up becoming a, ended up becoming a major part of our life. And uh, we never missed again. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, uh, bus visitation on Saturday morning, usually a youth activity on Saturday night, church camps, revivals. I mean, everything. My, my entire life was was wrapped around when we had a revival at church and back then revival started on sunday and they went through sunday you know what i mean our church we we have a large church and we won't hardly have meetings during the middle of the week because you can't get people to come because they got travel baseball and little league basket weaving and whatever they got going on it's just hard to get hard to get people to come but man, back in the day when they had revival, it started on Sunday and went to the next Sunday. And there was never a question. I never in my life walked in the house and said, hey, are we going to church tonight? Because I knew the answer. There was no question about that. Well, uh, in February, my brother surrendered to preach. I have an older brother. And, and they're nice to me, but I feel like my brother was probably more of an influence on, on the lead two brothers than I was. I influenced them to get into trouble. My brother was a good Christian and preached to them. <laughs> But uh, my brother surrendered to preach, and that became a major focal point of our family. Uh, he, when he was 15, 16 years old, he was like a child prodigy. He, he could preach like a grown man at 15. And he would go and preach week-long revivals at these churches in Arkansas, and our family would go. It was, it, it was, and he is a great preacher, uh, much better than me. You should have him sometime. <laughs> but um, 
So my brother on February the 2nd, 1981, he's preaching in Super Church. Remember Super Church? That was Children's Church back in the day. Did y'all have Super Church, man? You're getting all this, aren't you? All of these things I say, you get it. Uh, so my brother's preaching, and, and I'm, a, I'm an eight-year-old little boy, and at that point in my life, I really come to the grips and understood that I was a sinner. I knew what sin was. I knew that, that, that you know, in my own eight-year-old way, that I had transgressed against God's laws, and I was dying without Christ. And if I died right then, I'd go to hell, and I didn't want to. So I walked down the aisle under conviction and got saved, as saved as, as you could possibly get saved. Never, you know, and I thank the Lord for that. Regardless of the story that I'm going to tell you as we go forward, never one time in my life have I doubted my salvation because it really never was. I understood that it was never based upon what I did. And it was never, ba- me keeping it is not based upon what I do. It's all based upon the grace of God. And I put some faith in something that I didn't really understand as a child and I know that he saved me. And on that day, it was a great day in my life. And I remember when they, my parents took us out of the public school, put us in the Christian school. We started attending a Christian school. And I remember how weird it was to me to, to have a, a Bible class in, in, at school where they taught you the Bible. And, and then it became normal for, for me. I graduated from a Christian school. The natural occurrence after that is I went off to Bible college. And I'm, I'm going to Bible college and. That, that part of my life, it, it didn't exactly go as, as great as it probably should have, and that was self-induced. A lot of it was because I just, just struggled with some things. I was a married student, and um, every, everything that could be stacked against me was, and it didn't work out. So I decided I'm going to just go back home, and I'm going to become a, a member of the church, and I'm going to try to be plugged in and help out in the church and just be a good layperson. And, and that worked out, and that was great. Uh, this of things happened. My brother left uh, and took another church. Matter of fact, he went to work for your uncle. Uh, left and went to work uh, at another church, and then he took a pastorate in Florida. And we had a couple of uh, a preacher come in in between my brother and, and Brother Carter. Do you guys know Brother Carter? Yeah. That's my pastor. And uh, I was on the pulpit committee that had them come there. I'm responsible for that. Uh, and my wisdom, and I remind everybody at my church of that on a regular basis, that I'm a charter member, and I was on the pulpit committee that brought Brother Carter. I think I should have a parking place, don't you guys? I can't close uh, the the I, the church administrator is is he's really tough. But so anyway, I, I'm at this church. A lot of things are changing, and you know what? It became easy for me to drift. It became easy for things in my life to begin to change a little bit because there weren't the requirements on me that once were. I wasn't as plugged in to the things that were going on in the church as what I once was. Uh, I changed my focus just a little bit, and uh, I was in the car business. I wasn't full-time at the church. I was in the car business, and I'd been promoted a couple of times, and I'm now a finance manager at a car dealership. And I made some decisions financially and from a career standpoint that really made sense to me at that time, but I didn't think about the greater responsibility at work lessened my responsibility or lessened my availability to be involved in the church. Well, I began to miss church on Wednesday nights a good bit because, because I was working. I began to miss more and more, and we moved. And a really focal point of this story, a really important part of this story, was that my, my daughter got old enough to be able to babysit her two younger siblings. So we could go out, and we didn't have to round up a babysitter. We had a built-in babysitter. So Stacy and I began to go to the big city, which was about 30, 40 miles away where I worked. She'd come up there and meet me after I got off work, and we'd have a date night. 
Well, date night began to consist of, of you know, what's the big deal? We just have a, a little drink with our meal. That's not a big deal, is it? I don't know if it is or not, but by the time I get done with this story, you're going to find out it was a pretty big deal. <clears throat> These things began to compound. We moved. I took a job at a big dealership as a sales manager in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I, I'm a young guy. I'm 32, 33 years old at the time, and I'm running a top 20 Nissan store in the country. I'm about as arrogant as you could possibly um, muster up uh, an individual to be. Um, you think I'm bad now. It was terrible then. I don't see how you people stayed in the room with me then. Um, but, but I was making really big money. I had a lot of people over under me, uh, and I was on the cusp of getting my own dealership. And it, it was, it was really a fast track for such a young guy to be in the position that I was and making the kind of money that I was making. And, you know, with money become, comes more opportunity to spend it on ridiculous, crazy things that you shouldn't be spending it on. And so the party lifestyle just vamped up even more. When we moved from Alabama to, back to Texas, and I'm working in that big city, we went from a place where there was only something going on on the weekends to a place where there's literally something going on every single night. And we made it our business to find where those places were, where there was something going on. So it continues to ratchet up the lifestyle that we're living at the time. Well, in, in the midst of all of this, uh, we became uh, introduced to, to methamphetamines. Crystal meth. Uh, yeah, literally, I, I'm speeding this up because it's, it's, there's no way I can tell you all the story, but, but that just vamped up the partying, vamped up the lifestyle. Pretty soon, that thing takes over. I realize this is, this is out of control. We got to do something. I quit my job, and I move, we, we load up and move back to Alabama. I leave this dealership, all this opportunity, everything that's going on there because, because man, I, I just know where this is headed. The bad thing is, uh, I didn't uh, take into consideration that that addiction was coming back to Alabama with us. So we get back to Alabama, and I, uh, we, we begin to find and search out, and we, we find some opportunity for it there in Alabama to be able to buy it, and because th- that, that got introduced to us mostly in Texas. So we get back to Alabama. It, it, you have to understand the world. I'm not trying to give you an education on, on narcotics because you don't need to know that. But there was a big difference between the quality and price in Texas and, and what it was in Alabama. Uh, so the natural thing was if we go back to Texas from the people we know and we buy it, we bring it back to Alabama, we can make a lot of money. That's how my mind operated. I wish it didn't. So that's what we began to do. Um, again, Fast forward story here, but it was really just basically the, the lure of, of a lot of money and, and free drugs and just an easy life. You know, what it seemed to be until March of 2005 when the DEA and the ATF, the local drug task force and all of these people uh, come and knocked on my door like this. Hey, can we come in? That's really not how it happened. <laughs> it was like something off of Cops, the TV show. And I remember them coming in, and I remember this guy coming around the corner of my refrigerator and pointing a forty-five at me. The barrel of a forty-five, when you're looking at it, is about that big. And I knew the guy. I called him by name. I said, Brett, why are you pointing a gun at me? <laughs> and he said, man, just lay down. This is going to be okay. We'll get through this. But, but you got to lay down and put your hands behind your back. And I realized they weren't kidding around. Especially the way they come piling in there and all the riot gear or whatever, tactical gear and machine guns. And I said, man, these guys are not joking. 
And uh, that's when everything began to, uh, to go downhill. On August the 10th of 2006, I'll speed through that, I self-surrendered to Talladega Federal Prison for an 84-month prison sentence for trafficking methamphetamines. Now, that night, well, it's been a long time. It's still tough to tell this story sometimes. That night, I laid in my bunk. They turned the lights out. I can tell you I wept bitterly. And I didn't weep because I was afraid, because I'd walked through there that day before the lights went out and seen that there wasn't a whole lot to be afraid of. It was a federal camp. It wasn't like you see on lockup. The scariest thing that went on at this place while I was incarcerated was me running out of nutty bars. And that that did happen sometimes. Um, But... When those lights went out and I laid there literally crying in my bed, trying not to cry loud enough because the last thing you want is a bunch of other grown men in prison to hear you crying. I wasn't weeping because I was scared or because I was, you know, how much time I had to do. It's very simple. I wept because of the great disappointment. As I began to think about all the things in my life, the things that I'd, I had failed the people that I'd let down, the tremendous disappointment that was really unbearable. I just could not take any more. And it was almost like, well, this is it. Here we are. And I thought about Peter. And so I spend literally the next five and a half years of my life there in prison thinking about and trying to figure out what it was and how I could make such decisions that took me from being these guys' youth worker, uh, their youth leader, the person that they looked to, taught them in Sunday school, took them to church camp, to now I'm in prison for trafficking methamphetamines. How in the world does that happen? I'm sure Peter thought about how in the world do I go from walking on water to being side by side with a guy that calms the storm to to, to watching him feed the 5,000 to now he's in chains in front of the Sanhedrin and I've just denied that I was even associated with him. How do we go from that to this? Well, as I surveyed all of this, I come up with this idea of what possibly it could have been. The first thing that I found was maybe it was uh, Matthew 26, 7 through 10 says, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head. This is talking about Jesus. And as he sat at meat, but when the disciples saw it, they had indignation saying, to what purpose is this waste? I think about the story of Bear Bryant. Bear Bryant was a very famous coach at Alabama years ago. And he said, I got three kind of players. He said, I got the guys who have it and they know it. And he said, I have the players that don't have it and they know they really don't have it. And he said, but then I got this group of players. They don't have it, but they don't know it. And he said, I get more out of those guys than the other two groups combined. And I wonder about those players that have it and they know it. How, how is it that, that, that they're not more exceptional, than, more exceptional than the ones that don't have it but they don't know it? What is it about the kid who has a really high IQ but he's failing English class? Why does that, how does that happen? And we've all seen that. Um, 
What is it about a person that as a young man, people tell him, man, you have all of the, man, you're going to do great things for the Lord and he destroys his life. How does that happen? Well, I think it's very similar to this verse right here where these disciples became indignant about the, the, what this, the way that this woman was worshiping the Lord. I think the very first thing that happens to us is apathy. We just don't care. We've seen everything. We've been around everything. We've been a part of all of this great work. Some of you guys that have been here at this church, I'm a charter member of Temple Baptist Church in Colvin, but it's a lot newer church than this one. And some of you guys have been here since birth. You've been here, you come through the, the nursery and through the youth ministry, and, and, and you've been here this entire time. And the great things that happen here at Fellowship Baptist Church, you take it for granted because you've seen so much of it. I remember some of these heroes that I had growing up. I can't mention them now because they're not heroes anymore, if you know what I mean. Um, these guys that I love, these preachers, uh, somehow I was always able to work around and be you know, personal with them, go out to eat with them, spend time with them, uh, to the point, how many of you, how many of you guys know who Lee Robertson is? Anybody ever heard of him? Okay. Very good. Good group of you. I can remember as a seven year old kid scuffling with Lee Robertson in the church foyer. Okay. So I've seen a lot of things in church growing up and I became very apathetic to it. I became where when a person came to the realization that they were a sinner and going to hell and they walked down an aisle and got saved, it didn't mean much to me anymore because I'd just seen it so much. I remember uh, associated with Bible college, uh, I, I was at a church in Indiana when they had a Pentecostal a Pentecost Sunday. Not Pentecostal, whew, I'm Baptist. Um, they had a Pentecost Sunday. And like 5,000 people were saved and baptized in that one day. That's one of the most incredible things I've ever been associated with or been a part of. But eventually you begin to take these things for granted. You begin to just become apathetic about it. Now basically the word apathetic, if you don't know it, I'm sure you do, just means I don't care. You know? Why is the kid failing English class or math class and he has an IQ that's higher than all the rest of the kids? Because he don't care. It's not because you're not smart enough. It's not because you don't know. It's because you don't care. And it's that potential that will cause some of this stuff. And not only is it the potential, but sometimes it's, it's the exposure to great things. You think about these disciples. Man, you think about Peter's life. He had seen so much. He'd seen everything. And when he seen this woman come to the Lord and worship her, worship him in the most humble way that she knew how to worship him, and she gave him everything that she had, they didn't care because they'd seen so many great things, so, many, so much big stuff. And I, I think that contributed to it, but I'll be honest with you, I don't think that's why that I went the route that I went. I don't think that's why things turned out the way they did. Possibly it was, you know, another uh, thing that I went through in my mind. Maybe it was arrogance. And like I told you, I was, I, I struggle, uh, you know, and a lot of that is just being a man. A lot of it's just being, you know, you're going to have a certain amount of arrogance. But I took it to a new level. I wrote a book, 10 Most Humble Men in America, and how I taught the other nine. Um, if you would have given me a badge for humility, I would have wore it. Um, that's just kind of the way I was. And I become arrogant about uh, the situation. Listen to this. In Luke chapter 22, verse 33, 
And he said to them, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both to prison and to death. That's what Peter told the Lord. Mark chapter 14, it says, And Jesus saith unto him, verse 30 and 31 of Mark chapter 14, And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, this, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake more vehemently. Now what kind of arrogance does it take to speak vehemently to the Son of God? And that's what he did. He said, he spoke more vehemently, if I should die with thee, I will not deny thee. I think Peter just became arrogant to some degree. You know, I, I look at my life and I think about the Christian home and the Christian school and the great family and a great wife. I mean, I grew up, I don't know if you remember the, the, the Leave it to Beaver show, but that was my life. That was my family. I mean, look at this picture right here. I want you to see this. I, I asked him, brought a couple of pictures. I just wanted you to see. This is from 2005. You see this picture? I don't know how clear that is. That's, that's Christmas. That's a bad picture. I'm sorry. But you get the point. Look at me in that little sweater right there. Okay? <laughs> you think you could have convinced me right there that two years later I'd be going to prison for 84 months? There, you couldn't have told me anything right there. Much less that I was fixing to go to prison. I mean, look at nobody with a cat like that cat in that picture right there goes to prison, okay? Look at that. It's ridiculous. Beautiful family, man. Three great kids. Two of them are great. I mean, one of them's okay. Uh, <laughs> man, there's three great kids. Great wife. Great home. And in and, and, and my arrogance, I really took a lot of this stuff for granted. And I do think that contributed to a lot of it. Man, these people are sick of looking at that picture now, man. You can take that down. <laughs> I do think that contributed to a lot of that, but I'm, I'm not, I don't think that was it. You know, maybe it was the aloofness of it. You remember, it said in Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 58, it says, And they had laid, hand, and they had laid hold on Jesus, led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled, but Peter followed him afar off under the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. You know, I've asked the question, why was Peter following so far off? Why was he so aloof about this situation? You know, if you'd have been right up there in the middle of it, talking crazy to those guards, and continued on the route that he was on until he seen Jesus had turned and gone a different direction, well, he would have been with him. He would have been in the middle of it, right? So what caused him to be so aloof about the situation? Maybe it was just some apprehension. Maybe he was just afraid. Maybe he was aloof because he had some aspirations. You know, some of you are aloof about this whole church thing because you're scared. You know that God's going to put some demands on your life. You don't get involved because you know that once you start getting involved... That there's going to be more of a draw and more expectations and more demands. And really, you're just afraid of it. You don't come to the meeting at 9.15 next Sunday because you know if you get involved in that children's ministry, it's going to get on you. And there you're going to be committed. That's not what you want. You're afraid of it. Because you have some aspirations in your life. You have some apprehensions, but you have some aspirations because you want to do some things in your life that really don't include that. You don't understand, sir. And I don't know anybody in here. There might not be a single person in here like this. But you know what? You don't understand. My son's a really good baseball player. and We can't get involved in church because he plays travel ball. And uh, he's going to get a scholarship and go to the major leagues. And I'm going to be that really annoying dad that, that pushes him all the way through it. Those are our aspirations. 
We can't get involved in church. We have Scholar Bowl on Saturdays, and our kids are really smart, and they're going to go to big colleges and get PhDs and degrees and be intelligent so that I can show pictures of them to my friends and make them feel bad because their kid's not as smart as mine. That's your aspiration. And I get that. I got plans for my kids too. I got things I want them to do. But you know what? Those aspirations sometimes are not what God has in line for you. Maybe it's associations. Maybe you got some friends that if you get committed here at the church and you get plugged in and you get really close, those friends are different kind of friends. They're not going to understand it and they're not going to come with you. You're going to have to make some choices and some decisions. But maybe it was the aloofness. Maybe it was because my brother asked me one time, he said, how in the world does this happen? This is after, after the conviction, after I'm already sentenced, I know I'm going to prison. We're riding up the road one day. And he says, man, how does this, how does this happen to you? I said, well, I said, man, I just quit going to church on Wednesday night. Stopped reading my Bible and praying and got busy with life and I began to drift away from the Lord. And it's kind of like that casting crown song saying it was a slow fade. It didn't happen overnight. But, you know, as much as that aloofness, I believe, was a contributor to my situation, I think it was to Peter's too, I don't think that was it. I know you're getting probably drawing uh, impatient with me right now because I keep telling you what I think it's not. And we're out of time, so I'm going to tell you what I think it is. Luke chapter 18, verse 32 through 34 says, For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, talking about Jesus, and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death. And on the third day he shall rise again. There's a very important phrase right here. It says, and they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. I think the reason that Peter failed the way he did. I believe the reason that Peter wept bitterly because of a great disappointment in his life. I think the reason that I laid in a prison bunk in 2006 trying to figure out what in the world had happened to my life is really boils down to one simple thing, and that's ignorance. Now, I know you were probably looking for something greater than that, something more, but that's what it boils down to. Everything that I was doing in my life, especially even when I was serving the Lord, I was doing it out of ignorance, out of the wrong thing, the wrong motivations. It wasn't about how big the church was or how many people came or how many teenagers I had in my youth group or how many people were on my bus or if our church was growing or how many. It wasn't about that. You know what it was really about? What it should have been about? And had I've kept this thing into perspective, I would have not be here telling you this story this morning. It's about keeping Jesus as the focal point in my life and worshiping him as the Savior who loved me and gave his life for me. And when I lost sight of that and I became ignorant to those things, it became easy for me to be apathetic. It was easy for me to be arrogant about a situation because I wanted to take credit instead of giving it to the Lord. It was easy for me to become aloof when I didn't keep Jesus in the spot that he deserved to be. And the thing that will happen to you this morning, listen, I appreciate what you guys do in your recovery ministry because I work in the same thing in my church. That's what I do. But I didn't come here to speak to their people today. I came here to speak to you guys that are on staff. I came here to speak to you church members who are deacons. I came here to talk to you people that teach Sunday school. Because I sat exactly in the spot that you're sitting. And you may not go the route I went. Because you're probably smarter than me. 
But it may not end up in a prison sentence. But you'll continue to sit in this church service year after year after year. And you won't get it. You won't be plugged in and you won't understand. If you loved God and you had him in the place that he needed to be in your life. And you worshipped him as a holy God that gave his only son to die and pay your sin debt. There would never be another announcement in this church about begging you and compelling you to get involved. They'd have to find places to put all the people to work. But when you do it for the wrong reason. Or you're involved for the wrong motivations. You quit. You drop out. You get discouraged. And I understand that. So how do we prevent these great disappointments? First of all, just be caring. Just care about what you're doing. That's really important. You won't be apathetic. You won't not care if you do care. The second thing is be humble. You won't be, don't be arrogant. Understand that God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. The more you reduce yourself, the more God will raise you up. Just be humble. Well, be close. Don't don't allow there to become distance between you and the Lord. Keep those sin accounts really short. Stay close to the Lord. You know what's embarrassing to me? That for years, my prayer life consisted of things that if I could have gotten a hold of, of, of uh, Bill Gates and given him a list of the things that I was praying about, Bill Gates could have answered all of my prayers. Do you understand that? Think about that. That's not a relationship. That's a request line. That's a whole lot different than having a relationship with the Lord where you're close to him and you communicate with him and you commune with him. Last of all, be educated. This is how we keep from having these great disappointments. When I say be educated, I mean increase your knowledge about why we do this. It's not about... And I, Listen, I hate to, to reduce or what is so important here. Because nobody hypes up the church and the program more than Temple Baptist Church does. We love what we're doing there. But it's not about Temple Baptist Church, and it's not about Fellowship Baptist Church. That's the avenue in which we use to do what it's really all about. And that's worshiping and praising and honoring a holy God. That's what it's about. Keeping Him in the rightful place that He deserves to be. Because when you do that, you won't have these great disappointments in your life. 